What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food and the processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host, Poldy Wheeland, and this is a conversation with Daryl Bosshart from Redmond Real Salt. Daryl has actually studied salt his whole life, and I figured it would be good for us to hear about such an essential mineral from him. Now, I don't think I'm going on a limb when I'm saying that all of us use salt every day. But I don't think that a lot of us really know all that much about it. So that's why Daryl is here. He's here to really help us understand some of the ins and outs of salt, you know, some of the history behind it, how it is produced today and how it used to be produced, where it is really coming from. And, you know, we even discuss why salt is essential for life and sought after by basically every animal on the planet. So just as a quick episode overview, as always, you know, we start out with Daryl kind of explaining how he got into salt, how he got down this path of studying this essential mineral. Then we get into the story behind Redmond Real Salt, which is the salt company that I buy from all the time. You know, I exclusively use real salt, Redmond Real Salt. The only time I wouldn't use it really is if I'm pickling something. And even then I've used it before. Now we also get into some fun history facts about salt. We talk about how a salt deposit comes about. So a little bit of geology there. We get into the chemical makeup and the mineral profile of salt. We talk about how salt should really be looked at as a whole food. You know, salt isn't just sodium and chloride. There's a lot of other trace minerals that come with it, especially if you have a a quality natural salt. We get into how salt is processed in the modern world. We talk about different kinds of salt, you know, pink salt, black salt, all of that. Daryl also has some really cool insights into, you know, labels found on salt products and kind of proposes this three-question framework that you should really be asking yourself all the time when you're getting food from the store or from a local farm or whatnot. And uh, besides that, you know, we go into the iodine salt connection and how to know when you're getting enough salt or how to know when you're not getting enough salt. So... Those are just some of the things, some of the topics we talk about. There's a lot more in this episode, but I think it's a good overview. As always, this is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoyed, hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen. Make sure you review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also support it by making a small donation on Patreon with the link in the podcast description. If you don't know, Patreon is a service that allows you to help me create the show with donations as little as $2 a month. That's basically a cup of coffee, everyone. Now, the cool thing is it's all based on this patronage system that was super popular during ancient times. Back then, kings and queens alike used this patronage system to take creatives under their wing and support them in exchange for value. If you do get value from the podcast, please consider sharing it with others and simply connect with me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Poldy Wieland, P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Feel free to send me a direct message over there. Let's get a conversation started. I love hearing from you guys and I love hearing feedback, you know, stuff that'll make me get better, allow me to make the show better. And, you know, I just like talking to you because as much as you guys learn from this show, I also learn a ton from you. So enough talk, though. Let's get ready to hear from Daryl Bosshart. So, Daryl, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on today. You know, I'm ready to dive into the world of salt with you. I 
I know a decent amount about salt just from reading about it, probably more than the average person. But, you know, you're the true expert here. And uh, with salt, I think it's it's such an important food ingredient that we use every day on basically everything. You know, every recipe calls for it, or most at least. Uh, it's been used throughout history by humans for a long time. But yet it's it's also an ingredient that I think is really overlooked by people. Not People don't give give it much thought, right? If I... If I ask someone, like, what salt do they use usually, they'll kind of look at me weird and just be like, isn't salt just salt? So I hope you can really help us uh, shine some light in that question others today. I am delighted to be on your show today, Poldy, and uh, hopefully we can talk about a few things that your listeners might find helpful. And, and salt is one of the most fascinating minerals on earth for so many reasons, and it's often overlooked. People think it's a commodity. In fact, if you look up commodity in a dictionary, salt is typically listed, but yet it is so much more than that. All right, sweet. Well, before we get more into the details on salt, I'd love to hear how your journey, like your interest in salt really started. Great question. So um, I was born into the salt industry. So my grandfather and his brother had a farm in central Utah, and they farmed alfalfa, they farmed um, corn, they had you know a variety of crops, and had some livestock as well. And in the 1950s, this farm, late 1950s, this farm wasn't doing that well. But north and south of their farm, there was a little outcropping of crystal salt from an ancient seabed that had been kind of pushed up just north and south of their farm. And they figured if there was salt north and south of their farm, there was probably salt underneath their farm. And so they right. took a big rod and, and kind of pounded it down through the field until they hit the salt deposit. And so they kind of knew where this salt vein was. And they took a bulldozer and bulldozed the alfalfa out of the way. And about 30 feet below the surface, hid this mineral body of salt. And this, the deposit is about a quarter mile wide about three miles long, and at 5,000 feet, the deposit turns and then goes horizontal again. So the, the salt has been actually pushed up into a vertical salt dome or formation. And if you look on a Utah map, you'll notice that all of the mountain ranges run north and south. You have the Wasatch Range and the Okers and the Henrys. And as Utah, 150 million years ago, according to geologists, was at sea level, and it was 50 miles wider apart. And the Arctic Ocean flooded and left this big body of salt water layer by layer by layer and under heat and pressure. And then you've got you know, sediments and volcanoes and everything that happens over the next few millennia. And then as Utah is compressed and the, the mountain ranges are pushed up in Utah and squished together, this salt deposit, this ancient mineral deposit from the Jurassic era that's now 5,000 feet down, buckles and pushes up so the strata in the mine the the, the veins actually run vertical which is pretty wow neat. um and that's how i got into the salt business so through your grandfather and and you said his brother right the two the two found so, it together yeah so in world war ii my grandfather was in california uh, he was making planes for mcdonnell douglas and became a business manager and so we had some business experience and his brother was working at a big copper mine here in Utah called Kennecott. So it's a big copper mine. So he was familiar with heavy equipment, mining explosives, uh, mining techniques. 
And so when there was salt under their farm and they knew this, you know, the farm wasn't doing that well with the business experience of my grandfather and his brother's mining experience, that's kind of what gave him the idea to, to go into the salt business. And so it started really small and it's grown quite a bit since then, but that's the, the story of how I got into salt. And a lot of my family thinks, uh, you know, salt's boring and salt's just, um, you know, it's just an item But for whatever reason, even as a little kid, I just loved and was fascinated about salt and the geology of salt. And uh, I just love talking about it. So again, appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it's it's interesting that they made that, you know, that takes a lot of ingenuity, I think, to switch from farming to s saying, hey, let's go dig, try to dig up this, this salt mine here. And um, so you kind of explained how do you, so this is an inland deposit. You kind of explained how it came about, but how do they know it's from the Jurassic period? Can you test the salt? Um, you don't really test the salt itself. Uh, you know, it's not, there's no carbon in it. So you wouldn't like carbon date it or radioactive yeah. date like you might a fossil or you might a piece of, of wood that has carbon. So you can do carbon dating. Um, what they do for salt is they look at all of the surrounding deposit. And so they can see these different sedimentary layers, um, just like you would you know, in, in the age of a rock, you know, you can see that this particular rock based on the geologic structure. And so you use some estimates on the surrounding material to, to date the, the seabed. And so that's where geologists have put in the, the Jurassic era, 150, 250 million years ago. A question we get asked a lot is, you know, being an ancient seabed in the Jurassic period, do you find any fossil remains? Yeah. And we haven't yet. That doesn't mean we never will. And maybe it's because everything was so salty, nothing lived in the sea. Maybe because salt, you know, a salt, if you go swim in a very saturated body of salt water, you will float. And so maybe because the, the, the body of salt water was so dense at that point, any type of fossil remain as the sea got saltier and saltier would have floated to the surface and become part of the surface. Um, you know, sediment that has been since decayed or washed away, but no, we've never, we've never found any uh, cool, you know, fossils or anything within the, within the salt. So, and ever since then, your family has established a business around it and they have been harvesting this salt, right? Is there any concern of you guys ever running out? Great question. Uh, and so, you know, after my grandfather and his brother got started back in the 1950s, since then it's grown to be a lot more than just this, you know, small family business. And, and my family's still involved, but it's just not my family that's involved anymore. Um, our new, our current CEO is, is not from my family and he took over, um, back in the early 2000s. And so he's done great, you know, continuing to grow the company and maintain the values and the integrity that uh, my family you know, always wanted when the company started years ago. But as far as will we run out, so you've got this, you know, salt deposit and, and it's laid down in layers. So like this little notepad here, you've got these different layers um, and the layers have been pushed together into this salt deposit, like I mentioned before. And so the strata, just like the paper in this little notebook are running vertical, the strata runs the same. And in the last, you know, since we've been mining in 19, the late 1950s, we've gone down about um, 500 feet or so, a little bit further than that, in this um, 5,000 foot deposit. And so we've, and, and in that first, you know, 500 feet, we've taken about 40% of the material. And so we estimate we could probably keep producing for the next 900 years or so wow. 
before it becomes a problem. You know, being from Germany, I don't know if you've ever you know visited Salzburg. Um, I have, yeah. But that's that's a mine that is very deep. It's you know beautiful cathedrals, right? Um, and and our size is nowhere near the size of that. So we've got a long way to go. People can salt their food liberally, and we'll have plenty of salt to go around. Yeah, as a as a fan of you know your product of, of Redmond Real Salt, um, that's that's good to hear. Because uh, you know, I I haven't been really using any other salt since I discovered it. I'm not sure. Are there many salt deposits like this around the U.S.? Not around the, not really around the U.S. A lot of salt, you know, salt evapor, uh, it dissolves, and so any salt that's near the surface, fresh water will dissolve the salt, and so it's kind of unique that there's a salt deposit that is this close to the surface. You know, under the city of Chicago and in the in Kansas and Louisiana, there's some big salt deposits in the U.S., but they're typically so deep that it's not really economical to use a surface uh, access to that crystalline ancient seabed. And so a couple of the different ways you can harvest salt is the current or the, the ancient seabed, like we do, where we will, you know, go underground and harvest these salt crystals. Um, and everything in the deposit is solid salt. This crystal is actually more rosy than it looks on that photo. It looks a little bit white there with some, 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 some color, but it's actually in, in person. It's a little more like a rose quartz. Um, and then this bowl is uh, full of little salt crystals. Um, and they're, you know, kind of a, a rosy quartz color. So we take those salt crystals just like they occur underground. And for the food side of things, we, we grind the salt off the wall with a carbide tip. For the industrial and agricultural salt, we'll actually use explosives to, to extract those oh, really? salt crystals. And we'll put them out for, you know, animals. We sell a lot of salt for animals. We sell salt for safe roads, you know, here in the, the Intermountain West, as well as other states that have snow problems. Salt is a great uh, way to keep roads safe. And so we sell some for salt for that. And then we also sell it for animal health and then human health. When did you start really selling it for human health? Was that an, like an afterthought, really? It really kind of was. You know, initially, this salt, because this was a small, a small farming community, a lot of the salt initially was just, you know, sold in, in rock chunk or crystal chunk form for livestock. Um, because the local farmers, any, any farmer knows that if you don't have, if your cows don't have access to salt, they end up with all kinds of problems um, right. from calving rates to birth. I mean, birth rates, uh, foot health, digestion health, longevity, milk production, everything is based on access to good salt. And so initially that was a, a really easy market. And then the next easy market is salt for roads because, you know, as, as roads start to develop, you know, people need to drive. And if the road shuts down, you know, commerce stops. And so the state and the municipalities want to keep their roads safe. But it really wasn't until the 1970s when we started to get into the more of the food side. Now, you know, my family and the locals, because it was there and easy and it tasted better, we used the salt ourselves, but didn't really market it in a health food store until the 1970s. And there was a nutritionist that came through and saw the salt deposit and said this was amazing and went back to home. And, and we didn't think much of it, but then we started getting these phone calls. People saying, hey, you know, I'd like to buy your salt. And we said, great, is it for your roads or your cows? Or, and they said, no, this is for, for our health food store. And he said, we don't really have it in a, in a package for health food stores. And they said, well, this health food, this nutritionist said that the salt from this deposit is the healthiest, tastiest 
um, salt that he's ever found because of the mineral content. And the family said, well, we probably ought to put it in a shaker and we need to have a name for it. So we, you know, we're from the town of Redmond, this little town in Utah, and the salt, it's not fake salt or half salt or, or process. It's just real salt and the name stuck. And so um, that's kind of how we got into the, the health food side of things. And, and then it you know, kind of has taken off from there. Yeah, that's a great name for it too. Are there any stories that you, or any maybe historical accounts of Native Americans using this specific salt deposit to harvest salt? Yeah. So if you go back to the early, you know, late 18, early 1900s, when, you know, Utah is starting to get settled and developed as the early pioneers and, and settlers were coming through the area, they noticed these two small outcroppings of salt that, that happened to be just north and south of my grandfather's farm years later and, and watched the, the native uh, population accessing the salt. And the story goes that they found the salt, this, the Native American population found the salt by watching the animals you know, animals need salt, the deer and, and all the animals that are there need salt. So you watch where the animals go and then humans learn what's edible. They do that with plants. I've done that with water sources and, and even with salt sources. And so once they act, they, they found this, the salt deposit, um, they, you know, the early settlers started to use this deposit. And then years later, there's a, um, it's called the Fremont Indian State Park, which is uh, a state park between, in central Utah, kind of between a little town called Richfield and a little town called Beaver. And when they were excavating that, that Native American site the, from the, the Fremont Indians, they actually found crystal salt from the mine at this historic site in the ruins. And this was Uh, probably 50 miles or so kind of south of where the outcropping comes up. And then when they were excavating Mesa Verde, which is another really big uh, historic site, um, this Mesa Verde site also had crystal salt from this Utah deposit at this Mesa Verde site. And so, yeah, the, the native population um, long before the, the settlers came through the area had accessed this spot where the, where the outcropping of salt came to the surface and then traded it and packed it for, for miles, hundreds of miles. That's so cool to hear. And it's cool to think about that, yeah, that they would, you know, mine that and carry it, it out. And salt has been part of human history. It's, you know, we're animals as well. We require it, right? So do you know much about some of the ancient, maybe story of salt that you can tell us about? There's a really fun book for any of your listeners that might be interested. It's called Salt a world history. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Heinsky, I, I, I think that, I don't quote me on the name, but it's, it, the book is Salt, A World History. And in this book, it's amazing, goes back and tracks salt from the dawn of time and how important salt was to these ancient civilizations. And there's even some sayings that we have today that are based on, on salt. A lot of religious texts, if you read a religious text, talks about how uh, salt Uh, that loses its savor is good for nothing. Salt was used in religious ceremonies. It was uh, very talked very highly in religious texts. The spice trade often acts, uh, was based around access to the salt deposits. The term salary is actually based on the idea of salt. And there's a saying, and I don't know if it's uh, well-known in Germany, um, but here in the US, there's a saying that says, is a man worth his salt? It's an older saying, and that saying was based on you were getting paid your dues or your wages in salt. Wow. And if you, weren't, if you weren't earning your keep, if you weren't working hard enough to justify your pay, then that man wasn't worth his salt. 
Okay. Um, and you get this, you know, salt of the earth, this person, they might say, oh, this person's salt of the earth. Um, and so there's a lot of sayings because salt was so essential. It was traded, um, you know, for gold. And so it was a very important commodity because if we don't have a refrigerator, you know, all of us would have to eat more salt because if we, if we, you know, shot a deer, we would have to preserve that meat right. do that through heat and through salt by sucking the moisture out. If we're doing fermented foods, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, you know, any fermented veggies, pickling, we would use salt to, to preserve that food. And so salt was always necessary. And yet today on, you know, on a health show, you might hear a doctor say, Hey, you need to eat less salt. But the first thing they do when you go to a hospital is they give you an IV of salt water. And so there's a real misconception about salt and how in the right form salt's necessary. But if you take, you know, highly refined salt and put it on very nutrient poor refined foods, there is a poor health outcome, but it's not the salt. It's the, the processing of the salt and the poor quality food. And you can make cheap food last longer by putting cheap salt with it. And that's part of our problem with processed foods today. Yeah, and I'd love to get into you know that more how it's processed and and the minerals in the in different kinds of salts and, and whatnot. But yeah, from what to go back to the history real quick, from what I think I read an article not too long ago where they were saying, and I thought this was really fascinating. There were some, I, I believe it was Ethiopia, where they would literally have salt, you know, bricks almost like gold bricks, and they would you know ten inches long or whatnot, and they would use that as the currency of the state. So it was something that was extremely valuable. And I was just curious, you know, do you know why it was so valuable? Couldn't they just have extracted sea salt from the sea? Wouldn't have that been an easy way to do it? Yeah. So all salt today, so in chemistry, if we back up just a little bit, all salts in chemistry are an acid and a base that are bound together in an ionic bond. So we have different types of salt, magnesium sulfate, magnesium sulfur, magnesium sulfate is a salt. Now we don't eat that. Um, and you've got potassium chloride, you've got other salts. But when we're talking about salt in relation to food salt, specifically, we're talking about the salt of sodium and chloride that are bound together. And so, and that comes from oceans. Mm. Um, and so all salt today, regardless of how it's produced, is all technically a sea salt because it comes from a seabed. It might be a, a current ocean like the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, the Mediterranean, the Sea of Japan. It might be from a dead sea, like the Dead Sea in Israel or the Dead Sea here in Utah called the Great Salt Lake or other dead seas in the world. Or it could be from an ancient seabed, like the seabed here in Utah that's a Jurassic age. There's a similar deposit to the, the Redmond deposit in Bolivia. It's kind of a Bolivia rose uh, salt. There's one in Pakistan called the Himalayan pink. And so these are ancient seabeds that have been, then been pushed up. And so the key is a seabed at some point. And so because all of these salts can be defined as sea salt, then we get into some other questions about how it's extracted how it's produced and how it's used. And so some of that, like in Ethiopia, if you have a place where money means, I mean, you, you can't eat gold right? I mean, yeah. gold might be valuable. You can't eat Bitcoin. Like, <laughs> um, you know, there are some great ways that we have, uh, as humans have tried to associate value. And years ago, they would use beads, they would use shells um, to trade, to, to have some type of monetary value. And in some of these 
things like in silver, silver actually has some use to it. You know, gold isn't really useful um, as a metal because it's not as useful as something that's more conductive like silver or things like that. But it is, it doesn't go away. It, it holds some value. It's pretty, I guess. Yeah. And in, in a country where, where money doesn't really mean as much and you go back to more of a barter system, in a bartering system, salt becomes an elevated, elevated in its importance. In fact, because of that, um, you know, every war, uh, if you go back early, early Roman wars to, you know, even up through the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, salt has played an essential part because without a refrigerator, you need salt to preserve your food. And so if you have a massive army, they're sweating, they're losing salt. They can drink all the water in the world, but if they don't have salt, that army is going to really struggle. And so salt has actually been a key part of a strategic campaign. And in fact, up until a few years ago in China, the emperor owned all access to salt deposits. So you couldn't sell salt into China because salt in China was controlled by, by the emperor because they didn't want to have any, any other, you know, if there's a land war, whoever owns the salt eventually wins the war because you can't produce food. You can't, you know, keep a military safe without access to salt. And so because of the importance of salt and because it, it, it does preserve food, it does sustain life. That's one of the reasons it has been used as currency. Um, and in some places, salt is difficult to come by. If you're on the, if you're at the coast, you can take seawater. Seawater occurs at about 2%, uh, 2 to 3% sodium chloride. You take that out, take the big bucket of seawater that's 2%. Max salinity is 26%. So that's all that water can hold is 26% sodium chloride. And in the oceans, there's a lot of other minerals, right? There, there is sodium chloride, which is the base, but you have trace amounts of iodine, magnesium chloride, potassium chloride, phosphorus, manganese, all these other elements that occur in, in trace amounts in the seawater. So I uh, seaweed, uh, dulse and kelp is rich in iodine because mm. it's in the oceans. Why seafood is, is richer in iodine than it would be if you, you know, grew a potato in your field because of the concentration in the oceans of iodine. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, so those, that, that water that you take and then evaporate, eventually when the water's gone, you end up with these crystals. And so that is the salt. And if you happen to live you know, on top of a salt mine, like my, my grandpa and his brother did, you're pretty lucky because, you know, you can just, you know, bend over and, you know, plow the, the alfalfa out of the way and you can just harvest the salt like that versus if it's from the ocean, um, you've got to evaporate it either through heat. Um, and then unfortunately today, not only do you have to evaporate it, but we humans haven't been great stewards of our planet that we live on. And so, We've got microbeads and plastics and the BP oil spill, the Exxon Valdez spill years ago. And, and so there are some things that salt producers have to worry about today that salt producers didn't have to worry about, you know, 100, 200, 500,000 years ago. So is that an issue you think? Because, yeah, I hear that a lot, that the inland salt deposits are just a better quality salt compared to, let's say, a sea salt specifically because the microplastics are in there. Yeah, obviously, I'm a, I'm a little biased. I do like an inland seabed. And there, I think there are some really good salt today that do come from current oceans. However, as a lot of news articles have stated, if you do take an evaporative salt from any of our oceans today and you put it under a microscope, you do end up seeing little bits of microplastic and you can find things that maybe weren't there when the dinosaurs were, were wandering the earth. And 
And I'm not saying that means all of them are bad, but it does, you know, raise the question on, I think, you know, anything that we buy or anything we consume, whether you're, you know, getting venison or you're getting eggs from the farmer's market or um, some asparagus, I think knowing the source so you can ask a few questions and knowing the producer, those are, I think, important questions when it comes to our food today. Absolutely. You may not have had to worry about, you know, a thousand years ago. True. Yeah, that's something I... I say on the podcast a lot too, you know, ask more questions about where your food is coming from, right? And sadly, we have to do that today uh, because we have become so disconnected on a societal level. So, you know, if salt was so extremely valuable back then and, you know, we it's absolutely necessary for humans and, and life, we uh, need it for food preservation and, and microplastics aside, why do people think that salt is bad for you? Why do people really avoided these days? Great question. Um, you know, years ago, there was a study that was done and the study was kind of a based on, on loose science. And the study was called, I don't know if you're able to read that. Um, but this is the, the study. It, yeah. says, evidence for, uh, the relationship between sodium chloride and basically hypertension. And in this study, it was by a, a Dr. Dow in the study, they, they took I don't remember if it was mice or rats, um, but they fed them extremely high amounts of sodium chloride. And they noticed when they fed these mice or rats super high amounts of sodium chloride, there were some negative health outcomes. And so they extrapolated that and said, you know, basically all salt causes hypertension. Um, what they were looking at is salt's job is to help regulate the intercellular and extracellular fluids in the body. And it's essential for life. I mean, our tears are salt, our urine is salt, our sweat is salt. Our bodies are saline solution in motion, which is why when you go to the hospital, they give us an IV of saline solution, which is 0.9% sodium chloride or, or salt water, because our bodies need to be conductive. Out, outside of a spiritual discussion, the only difference in a human body that's alive and a human body that's dead is the absence of an electric current because my hand moves because electricity tells my hand to move. And if, if I can't conduct electricity, then I, then I'm dead because everything stops. And so this is why electrolytes, which is something that helps conduct electricity is so important. And why, when you go to the hospital, even if you have high blood pressure, even if you have water retention issues, you will still get an IV of saline solution, which actually helps balance the body. It doesn't throw the body out of balance. Now, how this happened is, yes, according to this study, high amounts of salt are a problem, but equally high amounts of water, which is great, is equally a problem. Um, and so we need balance of our electrolytes, not you know, copious amounts of one particular electrolyte. And, and that's what the medical journals have said today is, look, you know, sodium is important, but you can't just take a bunch of sodium without having enough water and enough potassium and enough magnesium and these other electrolytes that really balance those intercellular and extracellular fluids. Now, one of the challenges with salt though, is salt, you know, the goal of salt is to, to balance the fluids. One of the challenges with that though, is salt in nature is hygroscopic. So if I put a salt crystal on my kitchen table and it's humid outside, the salt will actually suck water out of the air and make a puddle underneath because it's, mm -hmm. it's that good of a dehumidifier so a lot of like uh, if you've ever been to like a, a nice big restaurant that focuses on meat like a big steakhouse they all have salt crystals in their drying in their age dry room 
so they're dry age, you know, age, what do they call it? Dry aging. The dry bees. aging, yeah. And when you dry age by putting salt crystals in that room, it actually sucks the moisture out and, and gets rid of that moisture out of the air. So the, the piece of meat can dry better. Interesting. And so you'll maybe walk into a nice steakhouse and you'll see there, some of them have a big glass window and you can see the meat drying and you'll sometimes see big salt crystals because it's sucking the water out of the air. One of the challenges with that though, is if you have a salt crystal in your shaker, on a humid day, those salt crystals are absorbing moisture. It's their job. Um, but what that does is it makes your salt sticky because it gets kind of wet in the shaker. Yeah, I've had that. Yeah. Some people will put in, you know, salt or uh, like rice or, you know, something to help displace the moisture and so it doesn't get clumpy. Or you just tap on the shaker a few times and it breaks up the crystals. However, around the turn of the century, some salt companies got together and said, what kind of chemicals? It was, it's, it's annoying, right? And industrialized revolution, we want to make things you know, we want to make it more refined and, you know, chemicals and, and chemistry is great. So what chemicals could we coat this salt crystal with to stop it from getting damp in the shaker? And so it doesn't get clumpy in the shaker. And they came up with a list of chemicals. And if you go to a supermarket and buy a shaker of salt and look at the ingredient panel, oftentimes you'll see a list of ingredients um, in the salt. More than just salt. Yeah. There's numerous on there sometimes. And those ingredients are things like yellow press seed of soda. You might see that or sodium ferrocyanide, uh, which is what sodium, uh, yellow press seed of soda is. Or you might see anti-caking agent E535. <laughs> if you Google that, it's also sodium ferrocyanide. Or um, calcium silicoaluminate, which is uh, an aluminum, silicoaluminate-based um, anti, anti-caking agent that they can add to the salt. Um, and... The, the challenge is if you add these chemicals to stop the salt's ability to interact with moisture, well, that's its job in the body. And so, so that's one of the big problems with a lot of these processed salts. And to make matters worse, salt companies today can also take away some of the other minerals that occur with the salt. And so salt occurs in nature as a complex chloride with calcium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium chloride. So if you fly over the San Francisco Bay, you'll see a, a series of evaporation ponds and they can take the seawater into the first pond and they put a different liner or a different membrane and they can leach out the potassium chloride, pull that off, move it to the next pond and leach out the magnesium chloride, move it to the next pond. And so through a series of evaporation ponds, they can pull out some of these other complex chlorides and then sell the leftover salt that then they treat with these anti-caking agents. And then we put that demineralized processed salt on a de, um, demineralized or, or nutrient-poor food. And then we wonder why we have health problems. But it's not the salt. It's the combination of, of the processed salt with the crappy food. And then we end up with, with health problems because we're eating too many French fries. Yeah. Um, or eating too many meats that are highly preserved with other chemicals and processed salt and versus, you know, preserving the meat ourselves or finding a supplier. If we do like, you know, a a preserved meat and using a a cleaner, more natural process versus, you know, a man-made process. So it seems like a good real natural salt then it's almost like a, a whole food, you know, and that it has all these, it's like a complex matrix of, of different minerals and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if there's vitamins in there as well, probably just minerals, I'm guessing. 
And that really has a, a different, if you consume that, it's going to have a different effect on your body than if you were to take one of these really refined salts that is usually found at the, at the grocery store. Poldy, I think that's a great summary. And one way to look at that a little bit similarly might be if we looked at an orange, you know, we, we know an orange has great vitamin C in it. Um, but vitamin C in an orange is actually a complex. It's, it's not pure ascorbic acid. And so if you take a pure ascorbic acid tablet, that's, I mean, if we're low in vitamin C, that, that ascorbic acid might be great, you know, stop scurvy and I'm not have, I don't have anything against supplements when they're needed, but ascorbic acid tablets aren't like, you know, the vitamin C complex that occurs in a citrus fruit. Beta carotene is refined pure beta carotene is not the same as like a vitamin A complex that you would get in, in either meats or in like a, a carrot or, and so there's this kind of holistic approach that you get with salt in nature that is just different than a refined processed version of salt. And, and, you know, once it, as you carry that forward over, over a long period of time, I think most people are realizing that a whole food is much better than a manufactured, you know, trying to, you know, isolate these different elements and put them back together. It's like, you know, you, I think it'd be hard to make a better tomato than, than a beautiful garden rich, you know, earth made tomato. Even if you took all the same, you know, kind of the key parts of it out, it's not going to taste the same and it's not going to have that same power if you just, you know, pull out the ascorbic acid and pull out the magnesium and, and then try to put it all back together in a, in a, in a tube. So how many, so I'm getting, those are called, I believe, trace minerals, right? Everything else besides the sodium and the chloride in there would be a trace mineral. How many, how many of those are found in the Redmond real salt? Do you, have you guys ever tested it? Yeah, about a 50 to 60 wow. show up on a test. Um, and the salt itself, uh, if you look at, you know, that has that kind of that rosy quartz color, the salt itself is about 98% sodium and chloride. So it still is, you know, mostly, you know, sodium chloride, those other complex chlorides and trace amounts, um, you know, they're not there as a supplement. I mean, you, you can't expect to get your, your daily recommended dose of potassium out of, out of salt. It's sodium chloride based. There's a trace amount there, but you need to also eat other foods that are rich in iodine and potassium, and magnesium and, and selenium and zinc and all those other minerals, but it does impact the flavor. You know, one of the things people notice when they switch from a processed salt is, you know, if you look at a processed salt, it looks more like a, all these like beady, um, perfectly uniform shaped salt crystals, where if you look at a, a natural salt, either from a current ocean or from an ancient seabed, they're more like snowflakes and that every crystal has a unique look um, versus them looking like they were all, you know, manufactured, you know, and beaded up just perfectly. Yeah, I've definitely seen that, uh, the difference there. Do you, why is, why exactly is the Redmond real salt red you know why does it have that quartzy color so that red color comes from the what we've done is we've taken a salt crystal you know salt crystals from the mine and, and if you've seen videos or you look at you know some of the salt crystal pictures we have some are, are darker red some have some pretty good black color in it and then others just have like a variegation of you know blacks and reds and if we take just the red pieces you know, this, again, not a great example, but if you were to just, you know, break that and just test that, you know, more rosy red color, it shows up richer in, in iron and iodine, in fact. And if we take more of a, a black section, you really can't see that there, but there's kind of a black, kind of a black speck in there. And we have, you know, black chunks. And if you look at that black chunk, it has higher levels of manganese and zinc. 
Um, and so there are spots that have different colors, but then when you grind it up and look in the shaker, it, it looks more just speckled. Um, and that's the, that's the different colors that show up on the, on the elemental analysis. And is that the same for, let's say, a sea salt? Because you know, there's, you always hear about the pink salts, the red salt, black salt. Is that exactly why that happens because of the different minerals? Uh, yeah. So among all of the ancient seabed salts, if you look at the Bolivian salt that looks very similar to the salt here in Utah, or you look at the Himalayan um, Pakistan deposit that looks quite similar to ours, um, those those colors are, are virtually the same. A lot of that is consistent. Now, if we look at other salts, uh, if you look at like the the Mediterranean or mm -hmm. the, if you look at uh, Brittany, France, uh, Brittany, France, a lot of the, like the Celtic and the French grays come from the coast of Brittany, France. And what they do there is they take the current ocean and they pull it into this, uh, near this settling pond. And I mentioned a lot of salt producers today will use different membranes or liners in that pond. So the, the water doesn't just seep into the ground and go away. The way it was done before we had those membranes or liners the way it was done historically was to line that pond with clay. Mm. Clay uh, kind of swells and creates a barrier. And so you've got French clay and that clay is kind of a, a grayish color. It kind of looks like um, this is a, as a bentonite or kaolin um, type clay. And so this clay lined pond will swell and create a barrier. So the salt doesn't go into the ground. And so as you line this pond with gray clay, so it doesn't just go away as it evaporates those salt crystals as you rake them up pull in some of the color of that gray clay lined pond and so that french gray color that color is coming from the gray clay that's lining the salt bed okay in hawaii if you've ever been to hawaii i haven't been yet i want to go one day but in hawaii they do a similar process but they use a red clay so there's this red hawaiian salt that has a kind of a light dusty flavor and that red color is coming from the red clay that's lining that pond. So they pull in the ocean water in Hawaii. They, they let it evaporate into this clay lined pond. And when they rake the salt crystals up, the salt crystals come up with this dusty red uh, salt crystal. And it's coming from the minerals in that clay. Um, clay is healthy. Um, there's a lot of great minerals in clay. Now, today, there's a lot of people that will make a black salt. Uh, typically, that's made with activated charcoal. Mm. And so they'll use uh, a pond and they either bring the clay in and mix it with activated charcoal in a pond or they'll do it in a vat and they'll mix the seawater with activated charcoal and let that evaporate and then just like the gray clay from uh, Hawaii, uh, France or the the red clay from Hawaii that black salt will typically come from activated charcoal that gives it a light you know charcoaly flavor um, which is fun all those are really fun for you know, we call it a finishing salt for a topical presentation. So if you've got a fish and you sprinkle black salt on it, it kind of, if it's a white fish, it really kind of pops. Um, if you're making a salt caramel, you know, using a, a rose salt crystal like real salt, or you use a, a red clay salt like the Hawaiian salt does give a unique flavor and a unique look. And, and there's another great salt that comes, since we're talking about colors, it comes from Australia. It's called the Murray River salt. And in Australia, this Murray River, it, it's a big, long river, and it runs through some salt fields, picking up salt water. And in this salt river, there's algae that, that live before it's too salty for them to, to live. So as you pull off this salt water with the algae and let that dry, the algae actually brings in a really light, light pink color. And so it's a pink salt, but it's not 
crystal based like the Himalayan Bolivian or the Utah, uh, Utah real salt, Redmond real salt. But that pink color is coming from the algae that's actually in the water in the Murray River. So those are some of my favorite salts from around the world. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And I I didn't know about the black salt, you know, having the charcoal added. And I also didn't know that there were really many. Are there many saltwater rivers like that? Or is it really just because the river is going over these salt fields? Uh, that is That is more unique. There are places, there's actually a place down in Peru as well, that there's a salt, uh, a big salt deposit, and there is a, a freshwater source that as it runs through it, salt or water is hungry for minerals. And so as you have fresh water, it dissolves salt. And so um, near the Sacred Valley in Peru, uh, not too far from Machu Picchu, there is a kind of a red uh, salt that's produced there as well, kind of Andean salt, um, instead of the Bolivian salt, it's the Andean salt, and it has a red color. And it's coming from this spring that then dissolves the salt deposits and then they evaporate it and then package it there in Peru. So again, salt has been such an important part of human life and animal life. And, and it still is today. We just sometimes overlook it because so many of our processed foods are just, you know, chuck full of not only bad food, but bad salt as well. Yeah. Really refined salt. Um, And it seems like the colors are maybe more just for culinary use and just, you know, how you would kind of mention for finishing and, and just a neat thing in general. What I've heard, you know, I'm not sure how much you like are informed about this or read into this, but I've heard that there, you know, you often hear people say like, oh, you should use this salt for these cooking applications and maybe like a fleur de sel only for like a stew. Do you have any recommendations there that you can talk about, you know? Yeah, I, I love the question. And again, for my everyday salt, I'm biased. And, and so obviously the Redmond Real Salt's my go-to. Um, and then we also have some different you know flavors with garlic and seasoning salts that are added. But if you look at just the salt crystal in general, the first thing as a finishing salt, color is fun. And so if you're at a, a restaurant, if you're making salt caramels or you're doing something really fun, there are some fun salts to add that add different colors and variety. Like example, you know, black salt on white fish does add a unique presentation. Um, and so that, that is, that is kind of fun. Now, if you're adding salt to soup, that's where the magic goes away because the salt's going to dissolve. Mm -hmm. um, and so in Florida cell, since you, you brought that up. So if you, so salt, as I mentioned, uh, settles off at 26% sodium and chloride. It, salt gets too heavy. The water can't hold it. And so the salt crystals fall to the bottom. If you take a, a saline solution um, that's near max salinity, and so this, this seawater is sitting there, and now it's very saturated in salt, and the salt crystals are falling off the bottom. If you hit the top of that water with a blow dryer, a uh, heat gun, or a hot breeze comes and just really hot wind is blowing across the top of that water, you get a flash crystallization of, of salt, or a, it's not, it's like kind of a film, a salty film that, that settles across the water before it sinks to the bottom. Mm. And so regular gray salt is harvested by a big rake and you go out into this gray line, clay lined pond and you rake the salt crystals off the bottom of the pond and you get that chunky gray salt that people have seen at the health food store or at the grocery store, they call it Celtic or, or French gray or, and that's, that's that. Now, if you take a really light brush, it's almost, it looks like a comb. And when the salt water gives that flash crystallization off the top of that water, 
and you take that comb and you really lightly lift off that, that film off the top of that water, that little light film is what you call Florida cell. It's these little, they call it the flower of the ocean, these little salt crystals that'll, that occur just at the top before they get heavy enough to fall. And that gives you a really light, delicate salt crystal, almost like a snowflake. Yeah, it's a it's looks a really like. light. Um, it's a very pleasant, mild salt flavor because it just dissolves so cleanly and smoothly on the tongue. Now you'll pay four to ten times as much for that little that salt film uh, crystal called Florida Cell as you will for the salt that falls to the bottom. Now, if you're going to put that light salt crystal on something like a very light uh, edamame uh, pod that you're going to eat, or maybe a very light uh, vegetable or, or asparagus spear or something. And you're going to eat that fresh before this, that little salt crystal melts. That's where you use Florida cell. If you take Florida cell, you're paying 10 times maybe as much as you would for, for the, the, the great salt on the bottom. And you put it in your soup instantly dissolves and the magic's gone. Um, and so I would never recommend using like a, that Florida cell crystal for a soup. There's another one that's called a Bali salt or pyramid salt. It's this beautiful little salt pyramid. It's formed on this kind of conveyor belt that they make these, looks like a salt pyramid. It's, it's hollow. It's a beautiful salt crystal. Um, it's pretty expensive. You might see it as cypress salt. You, you know, type in a uh, pyramid salt or Bali cypress salt, but again, it's pretty expensive. And as soon as you put it in the soup, it's gone. So that's a really another, that little pyramid crystal is beautiful. And to put that on like a little salt caramel um, as an appetizer, great use of it, but never dump it in soup because the magic just goes away as soon as you, as you drop it in. That's a very good point. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm curious about this. You know, I've read a book about the fake foods, like fake food industry. I think it was called real food, fake food or something like that. Is that an issue in the salt industry? Like, are there salts being sold as certain, you know, quality or certain standard salts, but they're not really not? Yeah, you, you don't, you can't really make a fake salt, um, but you can process it in different ways. So years ago, and even today, if, if you and I were given a presentation and we asked our audience to raise their hand, if they have heard that sea salt is better, my guess is a lot of people, even today, will raise their hand and say, yeah, sea salt's better. Unfortunately, today, that's not the case. If we went back 30, 40 years ago, it probably was better. But today, because all salt comes from the ocean, because you know marketing has found out that sea salt was a buzzword, you can put sea salt on anything. You can be clear full of processed chemicals. It can be highly demineralized. And you can still sell it as sea salt because it came from a seabed at some point. And so when it comes to salt and finding a good clean salt, rather than looking for a buzzword or a name, there's, there's really three questions that you need to ask. And I think it's the same three questions, whether you're buying venison, whether you're you know, getting great um, kimchi or sauerkraut or what, salt or anything you're buying, these three questions I think are super helpful. Uh, the first one is who is producing it? Mm. Um, you know, today with salt, it's particularly hard to go back and actually find who it is that produced the salt that ended up in your shaker, because a lot of the places where salt's produced, it's just sold in big mass quantities on the open market. And then it's rebranded and renamed several times as it goes through before it hits the grocery store or the health food store shelf. 
with other foods, it's easier. I mean, if you're you know going down to the farmer's market and you're buying you know some basil, um, it's really easy to talk to the person that's selling the basil and say, hey, did you raise this in your backyard? Did you use an aquaponic system? Did it come from California? Did it come from wherever? Um, and so knowing who's producing it really helps answer the next two questions. So once you know who's producing it, then you can find out where it's produced. Um, you know, today, a lot of our soils, as you probably know, are, have been farmed and used fertilizers and then, you know, same crop for dozens of years. And so the soil gets demineralized mm -hmm. um, in certain areas. And so the, the food may not be as nutrient rich as right. it was. And, and maybe there's, there's chemical residues because they were using some agent, you know, 20 years ago and it's still there, or maybe they're still spraying, you know, Roundup ready, you know, produce. And so where it's produced is, I think, is almost as important as who's producing it. Um, and when it comes to salt, that is, is it coming from a current ocean? If it's coming from a current ocean, is it coming from the Gulf of Mexico during Exxon or, you know, during BP? Is it, is it coming from the Sea of Japan during the, the radiation meltdown, you know, from a few years ago? Um, where is that coming from? Know, know the source. And then the final question is, what are they doing to it? You know, if you're buying a great jerky, um, what are they doing to it? You know, are they, are they doing, you know, sulfides and other chemicals or are they just taking it, drying it out, adding meat to absorb the, the excess fluids out of the meat? And, you know, are they putting anything in? Are they taking anything out? And so I think if, if we know who's producing it, where they're producing it and what they're doing to it, I think whether you're buying salt or you're buying whatever, even... Yeah, I think you'll get a great product. And so those are the questions when it comes to, to sourcing a salt, I think are, are the right questions, not is it sea salt? Because it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, if people started asking those three questions more, I think we could really do make some change in the food industry. Because from what I'm seeing, you know, especially with now, let's say the the carnivore trend, carnivore diet trend, you know, people are demanding better quality meat right so nowadays is this, this whole talk about regenerative farming and i really think the demand pushes so much of of what the supplier like people are going to supply companies are going to supply so if people really start asking those exactly those three questions i think that would be you know that could make some serious uh positive change there i i, I don't know if it was in a book or a, a podcast or uh, at some point somebody told me that we vote for the world that we want to live in with the dollars that we spend. Yeah. Um, and I think that applies to food, but I also think it applies universally. And if all of us were a little more intentional, and obviously we don't have time to, you know, Google search every single item that we're purchasing, but if we're just a little more conscious of the items we're buying, whether it's, you know, a mountain bike or, or food or whatever, I think as we, as we vote for, for the world we want to live in with our food dollars and our, our, our spendable dollars. I, I think we all essentially vote for the world that we want to live in, in the way we, we invest in our, our food and our, uh, you know, other, other lifestyle products. Absolutely. So what about, you know, that last question you had, uh, what are they doing to it? And it kind of goes with these, this idea of, you know, the refining and then also the salt substitutes, what kind of salt substitutes are, are, are out there and what, what are they really? Well, because people hear that salt's bad, or, or they did, you know, there's, there's tons of research now, um, and most, most doctors w realize now that salt isn't bad, unless you're on, 
on kidney dialysis, you know, kidney failure, you know, salt isn't the problem. It's the, it's the poor foods and the imbalance of electrolytes that cause the problem. But when people hear salt is bad, they still need to want to flavor their food. And so the question is, well, maybe I'll find a salt substitute. What happens when they switch to a salt substitute is the first, or the even worse, a low salt diet is they'll notice their digestion starts to go to pot because our bodies digest food with hydrochloric acid. And we don't drink hydrochloric acid. Our bodies make that with the chloride from sodium chloride and the, the hydrogen from water. And so through electrolysis, our bodies take these raw ingredients of water and salt and make hydrochloric acid that our bodies use to digest food. And so if you, if you cut your sodium down, not only do you start having some electrolyte balance issues and energy issues and, and all kinds of, of issues there, but then you also end up with digestion issues because mm -hmm. our bodies need the chloride that's often this overlooked nutrient. So salt substitutes, typically what they'll do or a, a salt modification is they'll take sodium and chloride and they will cut it with a potassium chloride or a magnesium chloride, some other a chemical to, to help give you some salt flavor um, that isn't sodium. But yet again, you know, our bodies are sodium chloride based. So sodium is not the problem. In fact, if you look at the label on a lot of salt substitutes, I don't have one here to show you, but the label, there's always a warning on salt substitutes. It'll say for normal, healthy people, um, you must consult your general practitioner before use. And they do that because these salt substitutes typically have chemicals in them that can throw off the electrolyte balance in the heart more than, than just sodium chloride can. And so um, it's not, again, it's not salt that's the problem. And because of that salt substitutes really, um, I think are, are becoming a dying breed because people just realize that we do need, we do need salt. We do need these other electrolytes, um, not the, the, the processed version of a salt substitute. Yeah. I've never really, you know, f looked for one or had one ever. I don't think maybe, you know, maybe in a restaurant or something that I didn't know of, but, uh, for me, it's always, you know, the idea of having a substitute like that when you can have the real thing is, it's always strange, but I guess it is tied to that notion that salt is bad for, for you and that people still believe in that. And do you, is there much change happening or do you feel like change in, in society happening with, to, in that regard with how people think about salt? I, I really do. You know, years ago, if we went back even 10 years ago, there weren't, um, there was a, still a lot of people, you know, saying that salt's bad. Um, but now a lot of the research, if you pull up the medical journals, um, there's, there's articles like this, this was 2010, so even this was 10 years ago. Um, but the article is from the American Journal of Medicine and it says low salt diet increases insulin resistance. Um, there's, there's other ones. Um, here's one on hypertension. Whoops. <laughs> here's one on hypertension. And it says, um, the, uh, the wrong salt, the wrong white crystals, not salt, but sugar as hypertension as the cause of hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. And so increasingly, there's just more and more of these articles that are saying salt's not the problem. It's the processed foods. It's the demineralization. It's the electrolyte imbalances. But in fact, salt, which is why, again, we go to the hospital. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to start an IV of saline solution, which is going to be standard saline is 0.9% sodium chloride. Another standard uh, bag of saline is called uh, lactated ringers, which also has Sodium chloride is the primary with a little bit of potassium, a little bit of magnesium. They're added to it to help balance those electrolytes. But um, because of all of that, 
I think there is a trend moving that direction. And I think the trend is the same. You know, I think people are becoming more aware. You know, I think if you look at soda sales, um, I think I read an article not too long ago that, you know, Americans, you know, traditionally just drink so much sugar water with uh, other chemicals. But the soda industry is is dropping pretty quick as people are becoming aware of the damage that all of this sugar is doing to us and our kids. And and I think that same trend is also happening with salt and they're realizing um, that salt isn't what they maybe thought it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so because it is, you know, it is such a such a tasty thing and I use it really, really liberally and um, you know, it's, it's always, it's also difficult to explain to some people, you know, why, why do you eat so much salt when they still have that kind of conventional wisdom in the back of their head that it's bad for you. And, you know, yeah. We, yeah. No, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, well, I was just thinking, you know, we talked about animals, uh, before we got on the podcast today and how smart animals are and how animals in nature will seek out foods and they'll seek out uh, minerals that they need. You know, if you watch uh, animals, they will they will eat certain plants. You know, um, sometimes you know horses will eat a fence post because they know there's something in there that their bodies are deficient of, and and so animals are really smart, and humans have always been that way as well. Um, but today, I sometimes think we have forgotten how to listen to our bodies. You know, when we get thirsty, we know we need to drink water, but outside of that, sometimes we have lost. Um, or desensitized our cravings. And so sometimes when we think we're craving French fries or potato chips, we're not craving a fried um, starchy potato covered in salt. We're probably craving salt. And we've come to associate that with craving a potato chip or French fries. And so what I tell people to do is, you know, I've got these salt crystals that I keep on my kitchen table. And, and if I'm having a craving, I'll just suck on a piece of salt. And when you first do it, actually, like this salt in my mouth right now, it tastes very sweet. Just like when you get that first drink of water after you've been out for a long run or working in the backyard, that first drink is like, ah, oh, so satisfying. By the time you drink three or four cups, all of a sudden that, that water isn't quite as delightful as that first drink. Um, and salt's the same way. When our bodies are kind of low on salt, that first piece of salt, especially if it's a good, clean, natural salt crystal, almost tastes like a sweet candy. It's so good. But if I did that four or five times, by the time I get, as my salt levels come up, my body's going to say, okay, we're good. And, and so I think as we get better about listening to our bodies, and when we think we're craving sugar, uh, or we think we're craving, um, you know, some fatty, salty food, starting with a piece of salt or a piece of meat that's preserved with good, clean salt, it's interesting to see how our bodies react to that. I mean, kind of, you know, step back and, and question our cravings. You know, when we have a headache, typically we don't have an ibuprofen deficiency. Um, a headache, first sign of a headache is typically a water imbalance and electrolytes. So, you know, at, at a headache, you know, a big glass of water with a little bit of salt mm -hmm. under your tongue often works just as good or better than, you know, popping a couple aspirin and a, and a glass of water. Really? So you, because I always do, you know, drink a glass of water, but you add salt to that. So, and, you know, generally I do, you know, when you think our, our tears are salt, our urine is salt, our cells through the sodium potassium pump, it clean, the cells clean themselves by using salty fluids. And that's why our urine is salt, our everything, our sweat salt. Um, and we use that salt water to purify and clean the body. And so, so we're burning through so much salt 
And especially once somebody switches to a natural diet. Now, if you're eating 90% of your food out of processed cans and processed refined foods, yeah, you probably are getting enough salt because of all this crappy food that's been preserved in crappy salt. But as you switch and you're starting to eat more intentionally and harvesting your own meat or sourcing your own meat or you know, going back to the source with good, clean vegetables, we actually have to go out of our way to add good, clean salt. And so that's why I do often add salt to my water, either you know, a little electrolyte. Um, we make some electrolyte stick packs that have um, that you can add you know, to your water on a workout or you're out hiking um, or just taking a little bit of salt under your tongue in a big glass of water. And, and oftentimes it's just so refreshing because our bodies, we might be drinking lots of water, but if we're not replacing the electrolytes, especially if we're eating a more natural diet, we will end up salt deficient. Well, you'll start flushing more out the more you drink as well, right? At that point. Correct. So what about the whole iodine salt connection? You hear that a lot. You know, there's like, I, I've heard of iodine, I think it's called iodized salt, right? Is that the, the right term? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, everybody associates iodine and salt today, where if you went back 300 years ago, that wouldn't happen. Um, not even 200 years ago. So the way, the reason that iodine and salt became linked together is that in World War I, the U.S. Uh, institutes the draft to, to draft military men for the military. And in the Midwest at that time, again, there's no oceans around the Midwest. And at that time, a lot of people are eating out of cans and white flour and refined sugars and not thinking much of it. And as they started to draft men across the U.S., they noticed the men that came from the Midwest away from the oceans, had a big goiter problem, an iodine deficiency causing a swelling of the thyroid gland. Um, and so they got this big goiter, and you can't have healthy men in the military if they have this goiter, which is a result of an iodine deficiency. And it was heavily in the Midwest because they don't have access to the seawater, which has you know seafood that's rich in iodine as well as food. And they're living mostly on that in that Midwest region out of a lot of processed refined flours and sugars and things like that. So a group of experts got together with the military and said, how do we solve this iodine deficiency problem? Um, I hope somebody raised their hand and said, hey, let's have a campaign about the importance of eating seaweed, you know, seaweed or seafood, you know, fish that is rich in iodine, because that's a great source of iodine. Um, maybe because of supply and demand, maybe because it was easy. I'm not sure why, but the, what they came up with is trying to find a food source that everybody has to eat to survive that they could add iodine to, to force consumption into the U.S. population. Mm. We do that in some municipalities with fluoride. Totally different discussion, but fluoride is added to municipal water supplies to force fluoride consumption. And so with iodine, they tried to add it to a few different things that people ate. They added, actually added it to, to flour as a dough volumizer. But what they ended up with was adding it to salt. They said, everybody has to eat salt to live. And so if we put processed iodine in the form of potassium iodide to salt, and we force the salt manufacturers to either A, add it, or B, if they don't add it, they have to put a statement that says, this salt does not supply iodide, a necessary nutrient on the label. And it started in the US and many other countries have now adopted that. So a lot of countries today require salt manufacturers to add potassium iodide to their salt or to put a disclaimer that says it does not contain it. Interestingly enough, 
and natural salt has trace amounts of iodine in it because it's coming from the ocean. But unless you add it, you have to put the warning label on there. What's interesting is that this iodine that's added to salt, they've found now is less than 10% bioavailable. So if oh, about wow. 150, you had 150 micrograms, your body can absorb about 15. Now, 15 is better than zero. So if you're somebody that's getting zero iodine and you put 150 micrograms into a shaker of salt and you get 10% of that, that's still, you know, 10% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Um, and so it did work and it did solve this iodine deficiency problem. And if you're in a place where you cannot get any iodine, salt is a source. It's a bad source. I would suggest that, you know, all of us should go out of our way to find foods rich in iodine. And you can Google foods rich in iodine. It gives you a great list and you can just, you know, source those. And because iodine is so important for health, reproductive health, sexual, you know, sexual health, uh, tumor uh, it's anti-tumor. Um, and it's so essential that most people should be going out of their way to eat foods rich in iodine and then to also maybe even supplement with iodine. But salt is a poor source of iodine unless, you know, you're back in World War One and you're eating, you know, just tons of processed foods. And you have no other source. It does an okay job, but we shouldn't go to iodine. We shouldn't go to salt for iodine any more than we go to salt for good, clean protein. Okay, so it seems like it's another maybe one of those marketing things on the label, right, that you see with so many foods out there these days. And it's kind of almost kind of silly to me that they would process and refine the salt, take the iodine away, and then re-add it again, you know. Um, so Yeah, we look at a lot of foods today, and they're, you know, you, you buy, maybe you buy milk at the store, and it's enriched with, you know, something after they've taken out the fat and all the other stuff, and they put other stuff back in. And, um, you know, at Redmond, we believe that for the most part, nature has it right with products and that it's really hard to take and make a better tomato. And in fact, if you've ever had a garden tomato from your backyard and you've grown this you know, tomato and it's been sun ripened, and then you take a, a, a tomato from the grocery store out of season and you taste the two, it, it's just completely different. Um, my son, I, I've got an 11 year old son and, and we have some asparagus in the backyard and our family loves asparagus. And, and the other day he was, you know, they're, they're, it's springtime and they're just kind of butting up and, and he was out, you know, eating, just breaking off a couple of asparagus spears and eating them. And, and my wife went into the, into the refrigerator and we've got some store-bought asparagus there. And she brought one out and said, hey, you know, taste these two and, and see if you can taste the difference. And side by side, he was just so surprised that the, that the garden asparagus had this robust, incredible flavor that side by side with the, you know, the store um, bought asparagus just didn't come anywhere near. Um, and most people have done that with the tomato or, um, a lot of our food today. We just think that nature has it right. And I think with salt, it's the same. I think anytime you go to that natural salt crystal, whether that's the, the gray salt, the red salt, the, the pink salt versus the processed the mineral and taste them side by side. Yeah, there's some health benefits, but the flavor is amazingly different as well. Yeah, I can absolutely attest to that. And, you know, we know like a natural salt has all these trace minerals that doesn't have the microplastics necessarily. If it's from an inland deposit, it might might have a little bit of iodine. But how do I know if I'm like, or how much should I really get, you know? And then we could maybe also talk about how do I know if I'm eating too much salt, right? Because that's something people should, although we can probably consume a lot more than what 
we believe to or have believed, it's still something that we do probably should watch out for, right? That we don't overconsume it. Correct. Uh, and same with water. I mean, if you if you drink tons and tons of water, there's actually, you know, there's been radio stations that have done competitions with people drinking how much water they can drink. And somebody has actually died from hyponatremia oh. because they're drinking so much water, they're flushing all their electrolytes. And then, and that's equally a problem as drinking, you know, not enough water and salts the same way. So again, if you're on the kidney failure or on dialysis, forget everything I've said, because if your kidneys are in failure, your kidneys are where you process our electrolytes. And if your kidneys are having problems, then that's a different discussion. But as a healthy kidney, Dr. David Brownstein in his book, Salt Your Way to Health, he's an MD out of the Midwest. And he says a healthy kidney can actually process up to four ounces of salt per day. Wow. Um, this is a nine ounce shaker. <laughs> and so four ounces, that is an insane amount of salt that our kidneys can healthfully process. And so now to do that, you'd also have to have other electrolytes. You'd have to have water, but, but salt, if you're eating clean, natural foods, what I tell people is salt your food liberally, and then you can add salt to your water to drink. So there's a lot of different formulas people use on, on how much water a person should drink. Um, one of the ones you hear often is about half your body weight in ounces. So if I'm 150 pounds, That'd be about 75 ounces of water a day as a, as a starting point, kind of as, you know, and people discuss that all the time, like about everything, dealing with health. Um, but in that, in that, if you take then and add about a quarter teaspoon of salt to a quart of water, um, that will replace the salt that is being lost. Um, salt is hungry for a solution. So you could drink distilled water but your urine is still going to be salty. Your sweat's still going to be salty. Your tears are still going to be salty until you're mineral depleted. And then you end up dying from hyponatremia. So we do need minerals. And so, um, the, a lot of the sports teams, you know, there's these sports drinks that came about, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And the one that everybody kind of knows the story of is the Florida Gators. They're an athletic team in the heat of the sun of Florida. They're running in the heat, practicing and, they start having cramps and they start having nauseous and they start passing out because they're losing all these electrolytes. And so they create this sports drink that is water and salt. They add some food coloring and some sugar and they call it Gator aid to aid the Florida Gators. Um, and it's really? a sports drink. That's how it started. <laughs> That's how it started. And, uh, and you know, all electrolytes are important, but what I tell people is, look, you know, if you've got, you know, kids that are playing soccer, my son plays lacrosse, you know, if you're mountain biking, running, roofing, you're a firefighter, you're just working in the yard, you're burning electrolytes. And so rather than buying a, uh, a sports drink that's, you know, purple or hot pink and has sugar added and has these other preservatives added, take a quart of good, clean water, add a quarter teaspoon of real salt to it, add a squeeze of lemon, a little bit of honey, and you've just made an amazing sports drink for pennies on the dollar. Um, and now if you don't have time to do that, um, we actually actually make a, a electrolyte replacing stick pack that you can, you know, just cut the corner off and dump it into your, into your drink. And it has uh, real salt as the base, which is the sodium chloride. Then we also add a little bit of magnesium and a little bit of potassium because those are other key electrolytes most people don't get enough of. Um, and then we put a little bit of stevia in there and uh, a little bit of flavoring. And so you can, you know, do that, make your own little stick pack. We call this uh, relight and oh. re-electrolyte. 
Um, or, you know, make your own. It's cheaper and, uh, and a much better approach to, to electrolytes and getting enough salt. And going back to the original question, how do we tell if we're getting enough? Yeah. Long term, I think listening to our bodies, um, by listening to our cravings, by, you know, you know, when we're thirsty, we drink water. Um, when we're low on fats, if we start getting more in tune, we can find good animal fats or good uh, plant-based fats. And with salt, when we start listening to our bodies, we'll notice when we're getting low on salt. And if it, if the salt crystal tastes really good and sweet, maybe eat one more. Um, and then add water to our salt or add water, add salt to our water, add salt to our good, clean foods, and then listen to our bodies. And I think we'll end up with a, a lot better salt balance. If you're eating processed foods, that's much harder because a lot of processed foods, one, they're nutrient poor, they're full of chemicals and ingredients that we don't really need. And because salt and processed salt is a cheap preservative, it's also got a lot of salt in there too. So, you know, change your diet and then, you know, seek good, clean sources of salt and uh, notice how your body feels and listen to your cravings. Is there like maybe a range of, you know, what's on the high side that you can maybe recommend to just for the general population that you've maybe stumbled across in your research? Um, yeah, you know, it really depends on the person, you know, somebody yeah. who's got a more sedimentary, if they're in an office building with air conditioner all day long, their salt requirements are going to be a whole lot less than, you know, a firefighter who might yeah. be in a heat uniform and they're just, you know, sweaty all day long versus an extreme athlete. Uh, and so the range is quite large. And so, um, I, I hate to throw a number out. Um, but generally speaking, it's a lot higher than, than most people think. Um, there are some nutritionists that will throw out numbers. Um, but you know, again, you know, that, that range can be quite large up to, you know, even four ounces, which is an insane amount. Um, obviously that's way too high for, I mean, even though the kidneys can produce or process that much, doesn't mean they should. It's pushing it. <laughs> yeah. But, but much more than, than the 2,300 milligrams that people have heard, which was the, the published data years ago. In fact, the New American Journal of Medicine articles show that consumption of less than 2,300 milligrams produces a much more poor outcome in cardiovascular disease mortality than those that are consuming above 2,300 milligrams. Yeah, so it's just another, it's like the bio-individuality thing again. With We're finding out that that's just a huge role in, in diet in general, right? And, and with a lot of different types of food. So it's same goes for salt here. And it, are there any like maybe symptoms that we can look at uh, that, that tell us that we're getting not enough salt, you know? Yeah, so the symptoms of not enough salt are very similar to the symptoms of dehydration. Hmm. And so, you know, the you know, headaches, nauseous, um, upset stomach, uh, fatigue, uh, muscle cramps, you know, athletes notice that quite often military will notice that. So they do salt capsules and salt tablets and, um, and things like that for athletes, because as important as water is, we have to have the electrolytes with the water to maintain that electrolyte balance. Um, in the, in a hospital, if they give you an IV of distilled water, the cells would actually start to rupture. If they give you an IV of coffee, even though some people might want that in the morning, um, an IV of coffee, an IV of coffee or soda would be disastrous. The IV has to be about 0.9% uh, sodium and chloride. And so as we're consuming water, that you know 1% salt solution is, is really what it needs to be. And so that's why adding that quarter teaspoon of salt to a quart of water 
um, listening to our bodies, kind of tracking how much fluids we're losing, and then replacing our water, but consciously replacing our salt, especially if we are eating a natural diet. And also when someone wants to, let's say, track their, their salt or their sodium intake, right? Salt isn't equal to sodium, right? Like you've been saying, you know, there's all these trace minerals and salt is mainly sodium and chloride. So should they really be, you know, do you, is there maybe a, a measurement, you know, of like, let's say one gram of salt is a certain amount of sodium that you can point people to? Great question. I don't get that question asked a lot, but that is a great question. So salt is bound 60-40. And 60, so if 40, you look okay. at one gram, you know, 40% of that's going to be sodium and the 60% will be chloride. It's actually 38, um, 38 and 52, but at 60-40 is the easy way to remember sodium chloride um, in terms of its, its binding together. So one gram of salt, generally speaking, and again, there's other, like if you look at, you know, real salt, 98% uh, sodium and chloride, right? And there's 2% other minerals. Mm -hmm. Of the 98%, 60% or roughly, you know, 58, 58% is actually going to be the, the, not 58, sorry, 50, 50, 62. Wow. I'm, <laughs> my math struggling here. We've been uh, talking for a while. It's going to be the chloride. And then the um, 38% will be the, the sodium. Okay. Yeah. That's just something to be aware of. Cause you know, people think, Oh, they hear you, you, maybe their doctor tells them, Hey, you should be eating this much sodium. And then they translate that to salt, you know, but it's not quite, it seems like you can eat almost a little more salt than, than what your sodium requirements are that your health practitioner might give you or whatnot. Yeah. There's, there's two ways they track that there's, there's salt, which is sodium and chloride, which is about that 60, 40 split. And then if you're looking at just the sodium, that's about 40% of the total that you'd get in. Great question, Poldy. Cool. Awesome. Well, we, I think personally, we went over, over almost everything. I was going to ask you a little bit about labels, but you know, the three questions you, you mentioned earlier, I think really kind of covers that, like how, how people should cho choose a, a salt or any other food, really. Is there anything else on labels you might want to share? You know, not really. I think, you know, as, as people just are more intentional with their food um, and their lifestyle, I think we'll all live in a better place and a better world um, by voting for the world we want to live in with the way we spend our, our food dollars and our, our spendable income. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, kind of in summary, I think uh, that I, I love the idea of nature has it right with products. And, um, and I'm not saying there's not a place for medicine. I've got a brother who's an MD. I've got a brother who's a chiropractor. I've got, you know, I believe in medicine, um, but I also believe in nature when it comes to products. And I think if we can, you know, go to the source um, as much as we can, I mean, it's, it's, I, I realize we live in the society that we do and, and you always can't just walk outside and, and grab a fish or you can't walk outside. And I mean, some people can, but you know, a lot of people can't, you can't just walk outside to your backyard and pick up a salt crystal. Um, and so I think as we are, are more intentional, um, you know, trying to get back to nature, I think we'll, we'll, we'll find better and, and even tastier foods as uh, much of the time. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, we talked about everything I wanted to really cover as well, you know, from how like the historic importance of salt, right? The health benefits of a good salt, 
you know, how it's processed, uh, how it functions in the body and whatnot. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that with us. Uh, it was really insightful, and I think the listeners are, are going to get a lot out of it, and hopefully they will start thinking, you know, a little bit more deeply about their salt and realize that it is almost like a whole food ingredient. Um, and where can people find Redmond? You know, if the I, you guys have a website, obviously you sell the salt online, but I know it's found in a lot of stores around the U.S. Yeah, you can you can find the Redmond Real Salt at a lot of grocery stores and health food stores. Uh, our main Redmond website is Redmond.life. It's not .com. It's just R-E-D-M-O-N-D dot life. And that has our electrolyte, you know, products as well as the real salt uh, products talked about today. You can also go to realsalt.com as opposed to fake salt. It's just realsalt.com and it's got some information. And then what I'll do in case your, your listeners might be interested, I'll send a, a link um, or a few links to you that you can add to the show notes if you'd like that has some of these articles we talked about Absolutely. today. It'll have that book that I mentioned, some of my favorite books on salt. And then you can, you know, share that in your show notes if you'd like. And and I really appreciate you having me on today, Poldy. I love talking about salt and so glad that you'd give me a few minutes to, to talk salt. All right, everyone. That's all I have for you today. I really enjoyed learning from Daryl and really hearing, you know, all these details and interesting stories about salt. I think he made some really great points about it. And yeah, I learned a lot. I hope you did too. I hope you got value from the podcast. If you do get values from these episodes, Please help and spread the word about it. Sharing an episode you like with friends is one of the best ways you can help grow the show. Also, of course, consider leaving that five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Like I said at the beginning, if you want to get a conversation started, you can follow me on Instagram, which is at Poldy Wheeland. Otherwise, you know, the podcast is also available on Facebook and Twitter. So, you know, I look at all those messages. Just send me a message wherever and we'll get a conversation started and learn from each other. Now, you guys know that I truly appreciate all of you who keep coming back to listen to the podcast. And even if you're a first-time listener, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and being willing to learn from it. Let me assure you, I got many great episodes and interviews in the works. So stay tuned. And until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring wild food together.